New preaching series, we're going to start today, New Mercies. I, I need to make two disclaimers. Number one, a large part of today's message um, I've taken from a book. Some of you might have read this book. It's in our library. I see that we have like 12 copies of it back there. I don't know. Y'all did a Bible study on it once. Uh, Philip Yancey's The Bible That Jesus Read. An amazing book. So if you do, if you've read that and you think, wow, Jerry's message sounds very similar um, Disclaimer number one. Uh, disclaimer number two. In my next statement that I'm going to make right here, there was no real research involved. Uh, I just got to be honest with you. Um, I'm not going to challenge the veracity of the statement. We're just going to pretend it's true because if we don't pretend it's true, then this message is dead in the water Like before we even get started. Um, and the statement is this. There's three inevitables in life. Can anybody help me out? I think we all agree. Taxes. <laughs> death. Change. Is there any others just to make this a complete research project? Right? Okay, so that, that was good. That was very good. Three inevitables, taxes, death, and change. And whether they're happening to you or a loved one, um, they, they're all shocks to our system. Right? They, they shock us. Um, and when I say our system, I, I, what I mean is all the things that we think and say and do that gives us the illusion that we're in control. Right? And so death and taxes and change, they just... They wreck everything. It just, you know, turn over everybody's apple carts. Um, and in our carefully, carefully curated lives, taxes, death, and change, they strip us of any sense of control that we fight so hard, fight so hard to maintain. Short, short, short example. Uh, picked up my mom from the airport the other day. So we drove to Spokane to pick her up, um, but her flight was to Pasco. A little miscommunication. <laughs> we look back over it, and we're pretty sure it's not my fault, but it, just, it lies very close to me. It, it's like right here. Um, misread a couple texts, and they weren't complete. And so five hours, it was a nice evening, nice afternoon evening. <laughs> Made it back to Pasco in time to pick up my mom at midnight. So, and, and, But that's what happened. Her flight got changed, right? And, and she didn't get her, her, her connecting flight, so we're driving down the freeway, my wife and I, and all of a sudden she says something, and it dawns on me, I just told my mom to fly to the wrong airport because we're in Spokane, and, and I think I just told her to fly to Pasco, and I'm having a panic attack. I can't stop. I can't pull out my phone, and so I'm driving down the freeway. I'm just going, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, please. Just, oh, man, if her flight happens in the next five minutes, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, and, and she could... She could end up in Sioux City Fall. I mean, it, it just is a horrible situation. And that's what change does. It just, it just everything. We, we thought we were in control, and, and, and we're not. We're, we're so not. That, that's such a, an illusion. Um, but here's the deal. Change is a part of life. And it will either bring us closer to God, or it'll take us further away from him. And the thing about this, this, this series, the um, thing I'm going to be capping on, capitalizing on, is the fact that in the midst of change, in the midst of death, and it doesn't have to be a physical death, death of relationships, death of business partnership, death happens in a lot of different ways in our world. And in the midst of all these, these changes, um, God gives us new mercies, right? He, he gives us the tools to handle taxes and death and change. He does. And we can accept them and move toward him. And again, or we can reject what he has to offer, these new mercies that he offers us. read a book in college. Um, it was by a guy named Albert Camus. And um, it's called The Stranger. And, and in this book, um, death and, and all the change around the early 1900s shocked 
the intellectual world, the writers, the artists. So for World War I, um, just kind of knocked God out of everybody's perspective, right? How could that have happened if there's a God? And so you have a whole bunch of literature and a whole intellectual movement that, that claims that, that God is dead. God, there's no way there can be a God at, and explain all of that horribleness of the early part of the 19th, 1900s. So in this book, The Stranger, crazy, crazy book, he rejects the idea of God. And a lot of people did following all the turmoil of the early 1900s. They just, there's no way. God can't be with all this. It's just impossible. And so he rejected God, and he asked the question in the book, The Stranger, can life hold any possible meaning or purpose? And he explores the predicament of man without God. What would man be, what would we be like without God? And throughout the book, happiness is fleeting, death is certain, the universe is silent, meaning that as we look at our lives, more often than not, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. Things just seem to be random and, and happen by chance, right? It, it just, it, it doesn't happen according to our carefully laid plans. More often than not, life makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and in the book, he, he kind of wrestles with these two opposing ideas, one that we, we feel and we sense in the world around us that our life is important at some level, right? We, we sense that. It, it's intuitive. It's, I don't know what to call it, but we just have this feeling that there's something, that we, we are important. But then at the, other, at the very same time, we have a feeling and a recognition as we look at our world that life is random um, and meaningless sometimes. It, it, it appears to be. That And in The Stranger, the, mirror, the, the, main con, the main character concludes this. He said, it makes little difference whether one dies at the age of 30 or three score and 10, 40, since in either case, other men and women will continue living, the world will go on as before. Right? What difference does it make whether you get up in the morning or stay in bed, whether you love or hate, life goes on, whether you try to change it or you just right, surrender to it. So the main character goes out one day and kind of got to follow his line of thought. If there is no God and if there is no difference that a single person could make, he walks out on the beach one day and he, he shoots somebody. He just he figures, you know, if life has no meaning without God, what is a human being but a tiny blimp in this crazy years, years-long progression in history? Depressing, depressing book. A lot of literature that came out of in that era was kind of takes the wind out of your sail, takes God right out of life, all possibilities, all light in life, and it just gets dark and, and, and gloomy like winter around here. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Um, so in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. The main character, the teacher, he appears to come to the same conclusion as the main character in The Stranger. The teacher makes three general observations about life throughout the book, and, and, and they're generally the same observations um, that the stranger makes. Number one, the mark of time. The earth has been here for a very long time, but people's existence is like a blink in time, right? In his own words, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, it says this, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. 
What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. And the final one, you know this passage, right? This verse, there is nothing new under the sun. And the writer to this book, Ecclesiastes, is, is when he says life under the sun, what he's, he's describing is life without God, right? So when you, when you read that phrase, just kind of in the back of your mind, well, that's what life without God is like, right? Life under the sun. His second observation is this, we're all going to die. <laughs> Welcome to church. The righteous and the wicked, those who love God and those who don't, man or beast, in the end, we all die. If this is news to you, I'm terribly sorry that you had to hear it in church. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says this in verse 19. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. It's like, wow. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Yeah, that'll lift your spirits. And the third observation, it gets better, you guys. It does. It gets, it gets better, so hang in there. Third observation is life's random nature. Right? You read the book of Proverbs, it, it talks about cause and effect and these neat little formulas about how your, your kids will love you and, and your wife will be beautiful and, and you know, the, the whole nine yards and, and she's beautiful. And, and yet, if you look at your life, some of those formulas weren't as automatic as you thought, right? You thought when you learned in math that there's a formula and this is absolute truth. No. In relational formulas, that, it doesn't work that way. It's not like numbers, right? Numbers are beautiful. You can't play with numbers. They're there. But relationships? Ah, they're, they're all over the place. So he, he basically makes this case in, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Right out of the shoot, he says this, The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Let's pray and go home. Nearly identical to the main character of the stranger, though. In other words, what can one person among nearly 7 billion make any difference on this planet? Positive or negative? And this is kind of where he arrived, both in Ecclesiastes and the book The Stranger. World-famous psychiatrist and psychotherapist Carl Jung uh, reports that a third of his cases suffered no definable neurosis other than the senselessness and emptiness of their lives. He named it meaninglessness as the general neurosis of the modern era. Meaninglessness. One-third of you, that's your problem, right? You just got a doctor's... <laughs> Note, and you can go tell your teacher, I don't got to come to school tomorrow. There you go, because life has no meaning. But to really get at the message of Ecclesiastes, we need to take a little closer look at this word meaningless, because it's, you can go meaningless, but, it, but the word in Hebrew is havel, it's smoke or vapor, right? And smoke or vapor can be meaningless, right? I mean, you see it, it's very clear, you can take a picture of it, you can draw a picture of it, but when you reach out, there, there's nothing there. It, the meaning that you thought it had, the form that you thought it had when you went out, and, and it, it, it wasn't there. So, so we arrive at meaningless, but, but that's not really the message of Ecclesiastes. The message of Ecclesiastes is the world, life has meaning, but, but more often than not, it's pretty darn near impossible to find it or to, to discern it. I know a lot of people, when something's going bad in their lives, their prayer life becomes, okay, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? Like, there's got to be an answer. There's got to be an answer to everything that happens. But life is like a vapor, a smoke. Right? You think you can grab it, and it, it, it's just not there. Very difficult to pin down, get a hold of, or make any sense of. In fact, the only other place, this is amazing, the only other place that this word is used is the book of Job. 
right? You know, you know his, his deal. He looked at his life and was like, life is just Havel. It's just smoke. You can't make God. Come on, give me something firm to grasp onto. So the problem with the English word meaningless, again, is not really the message of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, again, the message is there is meaning. We're going to discover it this morning. But without God, you're not going to discover it. You will not, and you will be frustrated. The issue facing the teacher are the same issues that face Albert Camus and Job, right? That bothers all fair-minded people today. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, evil people prosper, good ones suffer, tyrants reign, disasters happen, disease spreads, and everybody dies and turns to dust. Life is not fair. Nothing makes sense. And in the midst of rapid change, the whole world seems a little bit off balance and just twisted, and you're all feeling that. You're watching the news, you're just going, I, I do. I sit in my chair, and my wife's like, dude, you're, you're getting weird, because I sit in my chair, and I, what? I can't. I've told you this. It's, it's not pretty to see. In the words of the teacher, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. All of them are havel, chasing after the wind, right? That's what that phrase is drawing back to, chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, right? You can't grab it. It just, what is lacking cannot be counted. And then 10 straight chapters. So when you go home today, there, there's your homework. 10 straight chapters of, of all the different places that the teacher tried to find meaning. And, and it, it's a pretty amazing array. He, he looks at wisdom. He looks at folly. He, lo- he even looks at insanity and thinks, yeah, why not? <laughs> right? if, nobody, if, if, if everything is smoke and vapor, that might be the answer to all of our problems. We'll all just act like we're crazy. Pleasures, toil, hard work, advancement, riches. And he concludes that we'd all be better off if we'd never been born. Now, let me, let me back up a little bit. This is part of the wisdom literature. And if you were to go to the book of Psalm, which is a part of the wisdom literature, it might be considered poetic literature, but it kind of fits in the wisdom literature genre, I guess. Um, you'll notice, I mean, I, I've always noticed this growing up. It's like they're all over the map, right? If I'm, I, I, when I was in high school, mom remembers this, I think. Our, our church did a read through the Bible in a year, and I'm like, sign me up. I'll, I'm, I'm a good youth kid. I'll, you know, whatever. And I, and I did it. And reading through the Psalms was difficult, right? You read through one, and you're kind of like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Then you read the next one, it's like, I want to kill myself. Right? And they, they do. They, they're, they're, there's no, and I, I'm thinking, I remember thinking, why don't they put all the happy ones over here, and they put all the really sad ones over here? So if you have whatever you're feeling, you'll go to that section and then just wallow, right? Just wallow. But it doesn't work that way. Every, every Psalm is high, low, good, bad, lament. Rejoice, celebrate. I mean, they're just kind of all over the place. No apparent topical order whatsoever. And scholars have pointed out a reason for this. A possible reason. It's conjecture. Um, That matches your daily life. Your ups and downs of your daily life. your, Your faith in your daily life. Sometimes you're like, wow, God is real. I could reach out and touch him. And sometimes it's like, I don't think God exists. You have that, right? Not even daily, but seasonal sometimes. You go through a season in life, something's happening, and you just think, not sure anymore. I'm not feeling the faith. I'm feeling nothing but meaningless. That's all I see. So that's Psalms. Now, you get the same vibe if you were to read um, Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes, right? Proverbs... 
You read it, and then you, and then you arrive at Ecclesiastes, and you think Ecclesiastes was written as some kind of a mocking, cynical rebuke to rebuttal to Proverbs, right? In Proverbs, we picture a bright, energetic young teacher full of optimism and hope, right? And in a confidence, overly confident, matter-of-fact tone of voice, Proverbs tells us, I've got it all figured out, and if you'll learn wisdom, experience, prudence, follow the rules, you'll live a long and prosperous life. It's that simple, fools. Come on. And, and, and you get that feeling as you read Proverbs. Wow, you get to the end of it, you go, man, I, got, I, I could control life. I could be in control if I just follow the formula. God will bless me. He has to because that's the way math works, right? There's no two answers. My daughter used to think she could have two answers. I said, no, math doesn't work. Only, you, you arrive at one answer only. That, that's, sorry, that's the way it works. But in Ecclesiastes, we find a world where nothing, none of the Proverbs work out, right? The scriptures don't line up with our experiences, Thrifty and honest people suffer, die just like anybody else. Evil people thrive and prosper, regardless, regardless of the neat formulas we find in Proverbs. So in Ecclesiastes, we picture, instead of the bright, energetic young teacher, we picture this cynical old teacher full of resignation, bitterness, cynicism, and resignation, right? Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you're like, wow, are these both from the same Bible? <laughs> but that's our life. Sometimes everything goes according to plan, and sometimes <laughs> I quit. <laughs> it's Monday. I quit. I'm out of here. But the two together really does reflect our experience, right? Sometimes you experience a Psalm 23. The Lord lays me down in green pastures, and you just, ah. And then the very next moment, you're in Psalm 22, and there's nothing but death. <laughs> like, wait a minute. What happened? So Ecclesiastes offers this incredible philosophy of life answer that addresses this predicament head on, right, in a rather, rather brilliant fashion. In chapter 3 of the book, he provides, the teacher provides the heart of his message. And you all saw this. Patty read it earlier. There's a time for everything. And what's the crazy thing about this is you look it over, and if you think about it for just a moment, um, not all those things are going to be in heaven, right? You recognize that. Those are all things that we see in, on earth in our existence today, good and bad. This is a picture not of what was supposed to be. This is a picture of what is. Life isn't supposed to be this. We don't, we don't, we're not supposed to have a time of, of sorrow and <laughs> tears and weeping and, and all that bad stuff. When we get to heaven, that, that's not going to be a part of our life. That's not, that, was not never, that was never God's plan for our life, but that's the way life is. This is a picture of the way life is, not the way it's supposed to be. Right? Just make sure we kind of get that out there right there. The fact that life contains such a wide variety of experiences, regardless of your goodness or your evilness, right? Doesn't matter who you are, the rain will fall on the just and the unjust. It's just the way it is. Leads the teacher somewhat pessimistically to this rhetorical question. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. Eugene Peterson's message version, he writes it like this. But in the end, does it really make a difference what anybody does? In other words, why fight it? Then in the very next verse, the teacher begins to build this incredibly stunning argument for trusting God, even when there's nothing in our world and nothing in our experience that would lead us to believe that we should trust God. The teacher, he's going to build this incredible, this incredible argument that it does make sense. Even in the mind-boggling pace of change in our world today, it makes absolute sense 
to trust God. In theology, it's called the burden of the gods, right? The, the, the doctrine of man, meaning you get what you want, right? You got what you wanted. Essentially, there's very little difference between man and beast. The only difference between man and beast is the burden of the gods. What is the burden of the gods? Unlike animals, humans know that there are other options other than simply surviving. Animals don't have that burden. There's, they don't have the choice. It's just eat, sleep, procreate, <laughs> repeat tomorrow. There's no other option. That's, that's the life of an animal. But for humans... There's all these options that we have, all these incredible, incredible options, beauty and love and music and nature and art, but what we find out is these attractions inevitably destroy us. They inevitably destroy us because it's a burden we were never meant to carry. This is the central theme of the Garden of Eden. God laid the burden of man, on mankind because they grasped for it when Adam and Eve sought to be like God and understand good and evil. Distrusting God, they brought the burden of the gods on themselves. But human beings were never meant to carry that load. We're not gods. And it drove the teacher to despair. This burden of man once was only the burden of the gods. God. God decided what was right and wrong. And we decided, nah. I'd like to have a hand in that decision. But we're not God. Those were decisions that we shouldn't have been making. And we went and made some really bad choices. In verse 11, the teacher fires off in rapid succession three related thoughts. Number one, he's made everything beautiful in its time. In the beauty of creation, in the beauty of relationships, and the beauty of anything that brings us moments of intense, intense joy, our hearts perceive that the fact that although we're not gods, we're not animals either. Right? And this fact alone, this, this kind of drives atheists and kind of nuts, right? If there's no God, how can there be a recognition of beauty and love and relationships and things that you have to give of yourself? That doesn't make evolutionary sense whatsoever. C.S. Lewis called these glimpses of eternity drippings of grace. It's in this recognition of beauty that we intuitively understand the second thought in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Not only has he made everything beautiful in its time, but he also set eternity in the human heart. There's something more to life than just living and dying. Again, agonizing for the atheist, kind of in the same way that Christians look at pain and suffering and go, well, if there's a God, then why? Atheist looks at beauty and thinks if there's not a God, then How? Right? So we've all got, we've all got our issues. Um, but it's in third, this third thought in verse 11 that led the teacher and many folks throughout time to despair. Completely despair. Led Job to shake his fist at God and demand an explanation. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ah. For the person who senses eternity in their hearts but never turned to God who put it there, the teacher has a simple message. You keep searching. You can search high and low. You can search the world over. You're, gonna, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. You are going to be greatly disappointed. And there's a couple different ways that you can be greatly disappointed. I just kind of want to set this out before you so that you can see what's ahead of you if you decide to move forward without God in the midst of this crazy, crazy world. You can fail on the positive side frantically chasing wealth and success and pleasures. But according to the teacher, you'll ultimately destroy both the good gifts and yourself in the process. Why? Because we confuse the good gifts from the gift giver. 
right? We place the gifts above the giver of the gifts, and then everything just goes, everything just goes haywire. A wholesale devotion to these things will lead to a state of utter despair. Or you can, you can fail on the negative side, dropping out, giving up, sinking into a chemical stupor. Right? You have that choice too. Why? Because we've assumed a burden that we weren't meant to carry. And we can't handle it. And we try to find ways out from underneath this incredible burden. Chemical stupor, wealth, right? Anything. And when we're carrying this burden that we were not meant to carry, human beings turn nudity into pornography. They turn wine into alcoholism. They turn food into gluttony. And they turn human diversity into racism and prejudice. We kind of make a mess of things. That's that's what we do. (laughs) My granddaughter, Simeon, it's what I do. (laughs) That's what we do. As we abuse God's good gifts, they no longer bring beauty and pleasure, and we we, we, we descend into despair. In a nutshell, Ecclesiastes presents both sides of life to us, right? The promise of pleasures and the realization that these pleasures ultimately will not satisfy. This is the burden of the gods. He said, right, you, you want to take the apple, go ahead, but you don't know the consequences, but I'm giving you free choice. There it is. See, we were made for eternity, and if we are truly wise, we recognize that nothing this side of eternity is going to bring us ultimate understanding and a lasting joy without end. And in the end, the teacher freely admits that life doesn't make sense without God. So that's where meaningless kind of is misleading Life does make sense, but only with God. Unless we acknowledge our limits and subject ourselves, right, to God's rule, we will end up in total despair. In the words of the teacher in the final verses of Ecclesiastes, this is chapter 12, starting in verse 13, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil, So you have two choices this morning. You can chase after the city of man, the visible city of man, right, based on intelligence, beauty, wealth, power. And even if you're the smartest, wealthiest, most gifted person ever to walk the earth, which King Solomon, he he gets that reputation, right? Bill Gates is right below him, but Solomon, he still holds that position. Even if you're King Solomon, you will end up in despair. Believe it or not, it will happen. But there's a better choice, chase after the invisible city of God. As a far later, greater king recommended, right, this city is based on among the poor in spirit, the downtrodden, and the oppressed. This king offers nothing more than death of self through self-sacrifice. In fact, this king belittled Solomon in all of his glory by comparing it, him and all his glory to a field lily, right? If you think you are the smartest, greatest, and you can find everything on your own, you're going to end up like Solomon. No. The king I'm speaking of, of course, is Jesus. And here's, the, here's the teacher's advice. Three things. Closing. Since you can't control your life, stop trying. The only thing you have control over is your attitude. I love that. I, I think probably 70% of us have some type of poster somewhere talking about attitude, right? And we've made it very, very spiritual, and we feel very good. But it's true. (laughs) The only thing that we can control is our attitude. We have 100% control over that one. Second thing, the teacher's advice, enjoy the simple things, the good and the bad. Both are actually good things from God. Hold life with an open hand. 
So many things at first glance seem, you know, good or bad, but at the end of the day, we find out we didn't know at all. We were like totally in the dark the whole time. God knew. We, we, we didn't. We didn't know the good from the bad. We said no to the bad, and it was actually good. We said yes to good, and it was actually horrible. Horrible, and it wrecks us. We thought we knew what we were doing. Turns out only God knew. <laughs> and the last piece of his advice, life does have meaning even if we don't understand it. The Lord will clear the havel and bring justice. And, this, and in this side, until we see him face to face, the best explanation we have so far of how God plans to clear the havel, to bring justice, This is his answer. This is the most complete answer we have so far of how God's going to clear away all of the meaningless, all the, the havel, how. This is how, he de- this is how he decided to do it. And as you, as you kind of get your elements ready, I, I just want to pray. I'm not going to preach any longer about how the body and blood of Christ clears the Havel. That I'm going to leave this morning for you and the Holy Spirit. So we're just, just going to stop for a moment. Search your hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit, what, what does this mean to me? How does this explain you clearing away all of the confusion in my life, Father? How does this explain that? Father, as we participate in a ceremony that was started over 2,000 years ago, people around the world who follow you, they, they participate in this, this, this practice this recognition, this, this remembrance all around the world and it, and it speaks differently to different people depending on their circumstances and, and the story of their lives. Father, the, the body and blood of your son says a lot of different things. It says things to people that I wouldn't understand and, and it says things to me that they would not understand. And so Father, at the same time, this is an incredibly personal moment, but it's also a public moment. We're all together in one body and one spirit, one Lord, one baptism this morning. And so, Father, at the same time, speak to us, speak to our hearts, but speak to us collectively too. How, how are we as the church the answer that the world is looking for when all they see is meaninglessness? Father, we're the answer. We're your body. Father, help us to continue to have those discussions and how we can be the visible kingdom of God on this earth. Thank you, Father, for what your son did and what we're going to celebrate right now. In his name we pray.